Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and love's a circle with no end. Oh, what's going on? It's not about this last night. And he said happiness is egg-shaped. Hey, um, happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and love's a circle with no end. Hello and welcome. My name is Bruce Aitchison from Happiness is Egg Shaped and this is the Happiness Is podcast. I am absolutely over the moon with today's guest. They have always been very responsive, always been very welcoming and then I start to do my research and there's just another page of good stuff, another page of achievements. It is just outstanding from growing up far, far away from beginning the rugby journey going all the way to over 100 England caps and a World Cup win. Imagine winning a World Cup. That's what everybody dreams of. That's what you imagine you're doing when you're at training, when you're playing in the back garden, when you're throwing a ball around. It's always the World Cup final. Our guest today has won the World Cup. They've played for the Barbarians. They've been to the top of the world. They've been to Everest. Not just the Everest Jim Telfer talks about, because they've probably been there as well, but they've been to the top of Everest. Now, not just playing, but coaching, coaching, club coaching, international. It is just non-stop. And I'm delighted that she has agreed to come and have a chat to us on the pod. So I would like to welcome the one and the only Tamara Taylor. Yes! Hi, Bruce. What a great introduction. You should follow me around and just go ahead and like welcome uh, me into Zooms and stuff. That'd be amazing. <laughs> see, that that's like a massive compliment because I want Eddie Butler or Michael Johnson 
to be the soundtrack. <laughs> to my, I just want them to voice over my life. He's now making a cup of tea in the way that they do. That would be so cool. It, but it is. It, it's unbelievable. My first question, why rugby? What What was the attraction to rugby? Um, mainly because my brother played. So I've got a brother who's two years older than me. And I was total annoying little sister. Everything he did, I wanted to do. Like his favourite colour was my favourite colour. <laughs> my favourite animal. It, I must have been the bane of his life as a kid. Um, and he played rugby. And the school that we both went to, um, it was basically a boys' school that was turning co-educational. Yeah. So there was some rugby there. I saw rugby and cricket and, you know, traditional boys games as they were at that time so the the school year was that kind of rugby then into football then into cricket and athletics so I saw that it was a game and I never thought that it wasn't for girls I hadn't seen any girls playing but because I'd seen it being played I was like well one day maybe I can play that um and then a, a women's team started at his club at Henley so when I was 15 um I was like right I want to play rugby, Dad. You need to take me to the club. You take Jason to the club. You've got to take me. <laughs> I was very annoying. Um, and that was it, basically. As soon as I started, it was it was so different to any of the like the traditional girls sports that I was playing at that time. Um, if you wanted the ball, you could just go and take it off someone. You had to be <laughs> good at running, you had to be strong, you had to be agile, you had to there were so many different elements. I never felt like I was perfecting one of them there was always something else that you needed to be a bit better at or you could work on so I didn't get bored with the training there were so many different elements that's a that's an interesting mindset to have had that you didn't think it wasn't for you because at that time you playing rugby would have been quite a quite a different thing yeah I've, I've got a theory and I don't know if it's correct but I think with stuff like that you've got certain people who they just need an opportunity. So I didn't see that there weren't any girls playing rugby as a barrier. I just needed the opportunity to be able to play it. I didn't need the, I didn't necessarily need those role models. And I think you've got other people who maybe aren't as rebellious by nature as me. Um, <laughs> and they need to be able to see that they're welcome in that environment and that there is girls rugby or, you know, whatever the thing is. Um, and then obviously they need the opportunity as well. But I think it's kind of twofold. I was just like, right, my brother plays. Why shouldn't I be allowed to play? Yeah. You, you've you've come through rugby at a really interesting time. Male players, when they were there in amateur and around the late 90s when the game became professional, that that was the big change. You're You're heavily involved in a similar period for the women's game where – now there's there's TV coverage. Social media, I think, has helped massively the women's game. Um, you know, there's the Barbarians thing, and, and you are now that role model that hopefully kids are looking at going, yeah, this game is for me because there's somebody a bit like me. So how have you seen that change happen, or have you not been aware of it because you're right in the midst of it? Um, I think you have to look back and reflect sometimes to realise how far it's come. I've always been one of those people that's frustrated at how slowly it seems to be moving. Um, yeah. And <clears throat> people are like, yeah, but remember how it was. Like, yeah, but look at how it could be. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, when I first started playing, like when I was first in the kind of England pathway stuff, 
we had to pay to go to camp. So it was like, I don't know, 25 pounds or something like that to just be in some sort of an England camp. We didn't really get our expenses. It was at one point you got whatever the mileage fee was, but only after the first hundred miles. So some people would, <laughs> a bit of a detour <laughs> yeah yeah um and you know the girls just before me some of them were were sewing their own badges on their own kit you know a few years before I was there and then when you come to sort of whatever it was 15 years later and games are you know live on Sky TV that World Cup final was on ITV and they moved like moved the time of it so that it could be on prime um viewing time so there has been huge changes um and i think i think it's been quite cool for me to have been through all those stages like the girls coming in now they've you know they've they're starting to follow the boys route of maybe at university or at college and then straight into professional rugby and as those years tick on where we might have the same problem as we've had with some of the boys in that they're they've just been rugby players the whole life yeah. um but i kind of had that I got to go to university, I got to play university rugby. I didn't have that conflict that I think some of them have now where they have to choose um, so young and they have to like set everything in boxes. So I think I've been quite fortunate. Obviously I would have loved to have been a fully professional rugby player and got paid um, to do it. I got it for seven months, so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And how, how did it feel day, like you go from doing all the things you've done and having to fit rugby in and, and making, I tend not to talk about sacrifices because I think if you talk about sacrifices, you focus on the negative and the thing you're missing. So I'm going to word it this way, that you made the choice to go to rugby rather than maybe some of the other things you could have been doing. What, what was it like when you then became a professional and you woke up just to do that job? Yeah, it was... It was super exciting to, to begin with, like, because I was like, oh, my God. And the probably the, the best part of it was that Six Nations period, because that was always the really difficult, like, six to eight weeks with work, because we would go into camp maybe, say, on the Thursday and train, team run on the um, Friday, play Saturday, release Sunday, and then I'd go back to work maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and maybe back in camp, depending on when the fixtures were. And... I spent the entire time feeling guilty that I'd left like work back for other people to have to cover my work. And then I was still trying to sit on my laptop while I was in camp, sometimes planning stuff or changing stuff or replying to emails. Um, and I, that was always the toughest part because it's such an intense competition and it's amazing. I love the Six Nations as a player and as a supporter. Um, but that Six Nations was like, wow. I, I don't feel guilty on my days in between. I'm allowed to have an actual rest day. Like, what do I do on my rest day? <laughs> I suppose I should rest. Um, you know, it took a bit of getting used to. Um, and I know the girls when when the sevens girls went professional, they were they were almost bored to start with because they just never had so much time to not be trying to juggle something else. Um, so it was yeah, it was a really nice feeling. And actually when we came off those contracts so I played for another season after that um that sort of September 2017 that was the hardest I found that so difficult going back to what I'd been doing for like 13 years yeah. but it was suddenly it was the hardest thing in the entire world to try and split my time because I had this little tiny chunk of like 
taste of the good life kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I found that first probably three months, like just so draining, trying to fit it all in again. And it, uh, do you think then that the players who m- make it, so the ones who are getting to pull on that red rose, they have to have wanted to be there through your spell no no one fell into that did they because you had to put so much into it yeah I mean no one just falls into it by accident um but I think there's there's probably a combination of people who've grown up around watching rugby and starting to get to know those um female players there's definitely a few that have converted from other sports like Shauna Brown for example um, I think she's done a little bit of everything, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and she's sort of found her niche in rugby a little bit later on. So there's, there's always going to be a few of those. And with rugby being potentially a late development type of a sport where it's okay to start playing it a bit later and it's okay to change, posi- change positions um, a bit later, I think we'll always have a few of those people. But it, it's been nice sort of towards the end of um, playing for England to have a few girls coming in who had maybe been at the 2010 World Cup and had watched yeah. and to think that they had now worked really hard and managed to get themselves on the right pathway to be um, in that England squad was yeah quite a cool feeling. The, the support mechanism from your teammates I always feel in that and I, I say amateur not in that it was just amateur in that you were still having to do other things and as well as playing rugby. The support of your teammates must have been crucial because when your teammates saw you on a laptop trying to still do work while hang on we need to concentrate on Wales or Scotland like what are you doing but so the the support of your teammates must have been crucial and and I know only through social media and, and speaking to people how close you are with lots of your England teammates who probably live quite far away but because of the experiences you've gone through together you've just become very very close yeah definitely and some of that is about the good times and you know that world cup squad from 2014 it's one of those things that you'll always be connected even if all not all of those people were best friends with each other um but you've still got that connection we actually we've got a whatsapp group i don't think everyone's still on it I think a few people might have left um I put a message on there about um Jamman our old manager yeah um and I was doing a little chat about her so I wanted to like get a few stories from the girls and what could people remember and then it sort of started this trickle of stories and people reminiscing on stuff and it was so nice to be able to like rekindle some of those memories and and share that and they're the kind of things that when you've gone through certain experiences good and bad with a group of people you can always go back to those people to kind of feel that emotion again. Uh, it's quite a special thing. Oh, it, it must be. And, you know, people like me can, can only dream. Would you would you have a Channel 4 9 o'clock on a Thursday night hour-long reunion show with all you coming back together, a bit like at the end of Ocean's, an Ocean's Eleven movie where they all sort of walk back in? That'd be amazing. Right, let's. I reckon we need to make that happen. I think that would just be so cool because those stories you've all gone to do. Some of you are still involved in rugby. Some of you have gone to be uh, professionals in other industries. Some of, you know, working for RFU. Somebody like you is be at the top of the world and doing all sorts of other things. It would. 
everybody has such an amazing story. The the professional players, it's easy to track. You know, the England squad of two thousand and three is is now almost twenty years ago, but they all kept being professional rugby players, whereas you guys have gone to do other things. I think it would be an amazing story to listen to. Right, get that sorted then, Bruce. That's your right. job. Okay, <laughs> let's let's make it happen. So it that that journey over a hundred caps for England. Cap one must have felt so different from the last cap through through the journey that women's rugby had taken in that time. Yeah, yeah. Just thinking about that, I think I think probably my emotions before I went on the pitch would have been similar. I'm always really nervous. Um, I'm always wondering if I've done enough prep, if I've if I'm ready for the game. That's just always been my um, psyche. Was that um, a different feeling when you were a professional? Did you have a were you more relaxed having been a pr- no same feeling? Yeah, I'm always nervous. I'm always I'm one of these people that um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't commit the dates in my, I had a paper diary before 2014 World Cup and I wouldn't write the dates of camps for the World Cup in until I'd been told I was selected. Yeah. So a lot of other people were preparing and like, oh, this is when I might have to have time off work. And and I'd only put them in in pencil so that I could rub them out. Um, and I can remember my boss at the time saying like, oh, are you, you going to put those dates in to, to the like, online calendar? And I was like, like, well, I can't because I don't know who's in the squad. And he's like, but, but you've been training. Like, you've been you've been in the squad for how long? And I was like, no, but we've not had selection. Like, I just couldn't because I felt like I was going to jinx something if I if I committed it to paper and told everyone I was going to be playing something and then I might not be. I never wanted to take it for granted. So the the last cap, how how did that feel when when the final whistle went? what what happened to you what 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 was going through your head your heart what did your teammates say how how did it go that yeah really sad um so we were playing france away in grenoble um and we needed to win to basically then i think it was ireland the following weekend to be able to then have a chance to win the six nations um so that would have been we would have then had back to back potentially Grand Slams if we'd, if we'd beaten Ireland the following weekend um, and we lost it was really close it was just a couple of mistakes by us really France were good but I don't think they were better than us um, and I'd come off I think I don't think yeah I wasn't on at the end so it's even more like distressing when you're um, you're on the sideline watching and you feel hopeless it's a similar feeling to 2010 World Cup I'd come off and I was sat watching as the Kiwis got closer and closer to our line and we gave away a penalty, then they kicked the penalty and you're like, ah, I can't do this. <laughs> um, so it was, sim- it was a similar feeling in that France game and knowing that it wasn't just a game, it was that Six Nations that we had lost in that, in that moment in that game was pretty, yeah, pretty sad. The, the 2010 World Cup was was obviously a big deal because it was so close and didn't quite happen. I I used to say to players there were there were too many sleeps between Saturdays because what if the Saturday had been a poor performance, you know, you could always kind of accept the result if you thought you'd done well, but there was I always felt better after a Tuesday night training because I felt like right we've now had some real 
chance to input and make that thing better to have to wait four years yeah uh, i mean I, I again i can only imagine what what did that do to the team talks what did that do to the training camps what were you talking about we need to win this or did you wait until i believe you're saying you were nervous so did you never talk about it until that day or that week or after the semi-final how how did that four years pan out that's quite a big question. How long that is a got? big question. <laughs> oh, we've got a long time. Don't worry. Um, I think, I think probably the the first bit after the World Cup was everyone was devastated. You know, you had Catherine Spencer, who was a captain at the time, yeah, who retired not long after that. So for her, she never got that that chance to um, to try and have that like that four year. And I think for some people, depending on the circumstance they were in, it's probably one of those things that hangs over because it was so close and you know have you read Catherine's book yes have you, uh, yeah because uh, it's it's obviously a huge part of not just her rugby life but her life mm. and all the things that that could have happened and and that's kind of why I asked because I've I've read Catherine's book and there's so much in it and I, she didn't get the chance that others got to not right or wrong but get the chance to almost put it to bed a little bit yeah definitely and there's you know obviously as as captain I think you probably take that a bit harder but there's there's a whole bunch of players that that was that 2010 was there right I'm gonna do this this is the one I think I think for Amy Garner it was third time lucky kind of thing um and then she retired not long afterwards so it was yeah it was really really sad for quite a period of time and um it took us a while, I think, as a squad to get back into it. But the good thing was we kept quite a large number of those players. Mm -hmm. So as you kind of build through the seasons leading into the next World Cup, there was this kind of, we need to make this right. Whatever happens, we've got to make sure like we beat New Zealand. For me personally, everything that I did was about beating New Zealand. When we when we beat whoever by however many points, I'd be like, yeah, but would that have been New Zealand? Yeah. <laughs> and if I was training, I used to go um, training at the beach. So there's quite a steep staircase and I'd go and like run the steps and stuff. And I'd be like, absolutely hanging. <laughs> yeah. But are the Kiwis doing this? Um, they probably were. I've no idea. But um, I got a bit obsessed with like their top because they've just been so dominant for so long. Yeah. Um, it was just the dream to be like, right, we're going to take them on and we're going to beat them. Like, th this is all that matters. We've got to beat them. So for me personally, it was a little bit obsessive. I'm not sure how everyone else was. <laughs> Hello, my name is Bruce Aitchison from Happiness is Egg Shaped. You wait for a podcast and then two come along at once. I am looking forward to introducing to you Murray Field and me, a love story by Bruce Aitchison. I have spent so many happy days in Murrayfield Stadium. I could watch the grass grow. It is a place where I have so many memories. Happy, sad, because let's face it, I'm a Scottish rugby fan, but memories all the same. I've met good people, I've built strong relationships, and I would go back tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. It is an amazing place to watch rugby, and everybody knows happiness is egg-shaped at Murrayfield. So join me on the podcast, Murrayfield and Me, a love story by Bruce Aitchison.
<laughs> and then to to win the World Cup, I, I listened to a podcast Johnny Wilkinson was on, and and I loved this because until he'd said it, I had thought it, but didn't know what to say. What are you talking about, Bruce? He, he said he would give anything to be in the last 15 seconds of the game again, because that was not necessarily his happy place, but that was where everything was okay. You know, he was in the middle of a rugby field. It was the World Cup final, and he was confident that what they had done was going to pay off in the end, more so than the final whistle or the celebrations. And I've... I've been in games where I didn't want the whistle to blow. You know, it's that I don't let the music stop kind of idea. What was it for you in 2014? World Cup final, everything that happened four years before, all the work that you'd done, and then it happens. What Do you know what was going on, or can you only know what's going on by reflecting back on it? Um, I know that when the whistle went, <clears throat> I was just... It was overwhelming relief. There wasn't a, we've won the world. There wasn't jumping around Johnny Wilkinson style, like, we've won the World Cup. Um, I was just like, thank God we've won it away. Thank God we've won it. Thank, oh my God. We have, like, literally just thank God. I think there's a picture of me just stood. So a load of the girls have, like, come together in a huddle. And I'm sort of stood, like, facing away from them and then uh, my roommate Keats, Laura Keats, comes over and we have a hug and then we're like, we need to join everyone! <laughs> um, and like bundle on the back of this pylon. Um, but even when, so Skaz scores that second try and a few people have said, oh, that's when I knew we could win, like I knew we were far enough ahead. But even when she scored that, I was like, right, come on, like we've just got to keep fighting. Just don't let them in, don't let them in, don't let them into our 22. Okay, they're in our 22, don't let them pass our try line. Um, just, just, yeah, I think for me it was, because it was my third one, you know, you have all those those memories from the previous ones and, and games that you've lost and when you know that you could have or should have won, in, you know, in your head. Um, and I just didn't want this one to slip away. So I think... It was really nice that I was still on the pitch um, to be able to have that maybe that last 15 minutes of feeling like I was impacting it and it was okay yeah. um, because the other all my other World Cup finals I've been taken off for that last whatever that period of time is and lost and watched us losing and felt really helpless so it was nice to be able to feel like I was still there and able to impact if anything, not that anything was going wrong, but if it was, to feel like I could I could try and help. <laughs> and then the, the, the knock-on of that, you, you got to go to number 10, you know, you were a, you were a World Cup winner. What, what was the thing or what happened or where were you or who did you speak to when you, you sort of thought, hang on a minute, I'm Tamara Taylor, World Cup winner, and I've just done that thing. When did you have a moment or did it just all flow and seem like, yeah, this is this is how it goes? <laughs> um, it's quite weird because we we obviously didn't have the the sort of like the big fanfare and the open top bus and all that. And I'm not saying you need that, but I think that kind of elongates the feeling of you're a World Cup winner, doesn't it? In the in the kind of public domain. And we we did some really cool stuff that you would never have had the opportunity to do, like go to the prime minister's house um, and things like that. But in between, I went back to work um, and a lot of the girls had to go back to work, like the teachers and stuff. Um, yeah. So you were almost like 
it was a strange feeling. I wore my medal nonstop for seven days and seven nights. Um, so I was still wearing it on a day I went into work. We had this like. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com all I think it was like a north get together of all the, the community coaches <clears throat> so I had it on underneath um and I'm just like almost in the same kit because I was working for the RFU so I'm almost putting my my kit back on <laughs> going into work with my medal on like they just like tucked in um and one of the boys was super excited and like picked me up and like dragged me into the classroom that we're in and then was like, you're wearing a medal. Like he got super excited. But then I was quite embarrassed because I didn't want everyone to be staring at me and like to cause a big scene because it was work. I was in work mode. Yeah. Um, so bits like that were, it was just a bit surreal to be like, oh my God, last week I was winning a World Cup and now I'm. Held back at work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but probably the most amazing bit that we got to do was the Sports Personality of the Year Awards. Yeah. Um, I've watched that like religiously every year as a kid I just loved it I loved like I just loved everything about it all the good stories that you got all the the athletes that got to be celebrated so when we were there I was like we're here we've been nominated I was like a proper little school girl wandering around like that's blah blah that's blah blah um and then the fact that we won it was yeah just absolutely amazing to be able to go on stage and and afterwards, because you're in a in the after party with all the athletes and like the VIPs and the special people, and normally <laughs> you're you know you're one of the starstruck people, and we were all wearing um, the same sort of outfit, so we yeah. we looked like a team. Um, so when we were wandering around, even in our little pods of people afterwards, people knew who we were and were coming up and congratulating us, and that was yeah, that was a really nice feeling to be almost all of us all together we were only missing one player um that evening to have everyone back together and have another little joint celebration together that that wasn't me i can remember that and i can remember so many people just willing you to win that because far too often female athletes or teams have been overlooked and to have you all on stage was a real moment for for the sport for rugby for women's sport for it was just such a big deal and I think it's funny when you say behind with all the special people you are the special <laughs> people you were world cup winners that was just outstanding now all, all the stories you've told so far Catherine Spencer's written a book when's yours coming out I know I need to speak to her about how she did that I think it was quite a labor of love to yeah um, to get the funding and everything 
Yeah, well, help me and I'll write one. <laughs> I, I, I think it would just be... so many jobs to do, Bruce. So I know, many. I know. Channel 4, you've got to help me with the book. There's just right. Hey, it's 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 in because I think your story is absolutely amazing because the thing you've not mentioned, I mean, would do you think you would have got an invite to go and climb Everest if you hadn't been Tamara Taylor World Cup winner? <laughs> um, hopefully Spoons would have invited me anyway. Oh, okay. I've been an ambassador for a while, um, for the charity. But yeah, I mean I should have taken my medal really, shouldn't I? What like what what was was that just a phone call? Was that just yeah. a yeah. Listen, we're thinking about climbing Everest. What's your? Did you just go? Yeah, okay. Like, how how does that work? So I've I've supported the charity for quite a few years, um, and every four years they do something a bit crazy, basically, um, to coincide with the Men's World Cup. And they'd been to the North Pole yeah. four years previous, and I'd seen some of the. A friend um, of mine is the top try scorer in that game. John Houston is the top try scorer, oh, which, right. which Ollie Phillips hates <laughs> that Houston scored more tries than him. <laughs> not that Ollie Phillips is competitive. Not no, at not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah, so I'd seen they'd done that and I was like, oh my God, that would be amazing. And I remember speaking to someone at the charity and they were like, oh, it's like, it's just a uh, same sex game. It can't be mixed gender. And I was like, oh, that's a shame. Um, and then... <laughs> Whether that maybe flagged something and they were like, oh, that tomorrow girl might do it. Um, but Matt Mitchell <laughs> rang me and said, we're looking for we're looking for some females. We're going to do something like it's going to be mixed touch. So it can be, you know, men's and women's, blah, blah, blah. Going to go up like a mountain. And I, I don't think I really listened to like the exact details. I was like, yeah, I'm in. Let's go. And yeah, cool. Whatever you're doing, I'm sure it'd be really fun. Um and it was only like as time ticked on that I was started watching like Everest documentaries every week and was like, oh God, <laughs> it's quite a big mountain, isn't it? Like, <laughs> like lots of people are dying up there. I know we were never going to go that high, but um, I just, I've never done any real going up mountainy type stuff, not really. <laughs> so I was quite naive as to how horrific it was going to be in terms of no oxygen, feeling like the head was going to explode not being able to walk more than about five steps at a time without having to stop. Um, yeah, you just can't prepare for that, I don't think. <laughs> and see, that's when, when you watch these TV shows, you watch any of these endurance things and you only see that much. And you sit on your couch with your cup of tea and your custard cream and go, I could, I could do that. And then, I mean, it, it's impossible to imagine. Was that something... Could you train for that? I mean, running up and down the steps, you were a fit athlete. How how did it feel when you got to a certain point and your body started to say, no, 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 we, we've had enough of this? Yeah, it is it is the lack of oxygen. It sounds very simple, and I guess it is. Um, we did altitude training, so you can, you can either go to a place like the Altitude Centre. Um, they've got one in London where they – they reduce the oxygen in a room so you can be on like a watt bike or a treadmill or whatever and there's less and less um oxygen so you, you can do that type of training I did a bit of that and then I did a bit with a like a mask at um Gateshead College which is by me they had a, a hypoxic um machine basically and then I slept in a tent um in this <laughs> room on the floor 
uh, for like I think six weeks. So you you basically reduce it as you go. So you're effectively pretending that you're climbing, and yeah. it's supposed to help your body to acclimatize because you're in there for whatever, say eight hours at night. It's easier to do that than to have to wander around with a mask on during your day. Yeah. Uh, so I did that. Didn't get much sleep. It was horrific. It was really noisy. It was sweaty. It was awful. <laughs> Um, and then I still struggled on the mountain anyway, so I don't know whether it um, it helped me or not. If, um, have, you, have you seen the films? Sorry to cut you off. Um, you've seen the films where basically where the people die and they're sat there and people are like, come on, come on, John, you need to keep going. And they're like, no, it's fine. And they're really calm. And, and the books I've read, I'm like, get up. What's your problem? Why are you sitting there? Why would you sit there and die? I don't understand. But honestly, the the way that the lack of oxygen affects you is you just don't care. So when I was feeling at my worst, I had two bad episodes up there. The first one, it was that my head, I thought my head was going to explode. I've never, ever had such a bad headache, earache, eye ache. I couldn't see. I was just, I was just walking behind the person in front of me, one foot in front of the other. I must have looked dreadful because Ollie Phillips was like, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> do you need some and they tried to give me like a Mars bar or something thinking I was like low on sugar but I wasn't I was just like my brain was silently seeping out of my ears um, <laughs> and on the way back that so they turned me around obviously when they realized that I was not in great shape and they carried on to wherever this it was like an acclimatization walk and um the guy who took me back down was one of our he was one of the the people on the um on the charity do but he was a ex i think special boat services yeah. he's a mountain leader he's a first aider like absolute legend um and he took me back down with one of the sherpas and he was like right tam we need to sit and rest and then we'll go again and the first time i sat down to rest i started getting that feeling that i'd read about and seen on films of like nah i'll just stay here just leave me like it's cool <laughs> and i wasn't bothered like i just i literally was like well i don't I don't care really and whatever triggered in my brain was don't make these poor people have to carry you you're really heavy you've still got like three hours to go back down are you insane you're going to make them have to drag you and that got me up I was like oh god please like, I don't want them to have to drag me this is awful and then he kept trying to make me stop and I was like no we're not we're not stopping like head down keep going as slow as it took me as like I, I couldn't really see um and we got back down and I spoke to him afterwards he was like well I thought you were such a like such a trooper you kept going and you didn't want to stop and I didn't I didn't have a heart to tell him that I was like mate if I stopped that was going to be the end of all three of us because I'm heavy you'd have had to drag my body like it just would have been awful (laughs) and the the sense of achievement after it do you do you give yourself a pat on the back when you do these these things is that Yes, and then I think you forget that you've done them and then you see a picture and you're like, oh my God, I was up Everest. Or like a memory comes up on Facebook or something and it's yeah. a picture and you think, oh my goodness. Um, I think, like, sort of like I said before, that bit where you can go back with those people that were involved in that, whatever that part of your life was, that's the really special part is someone again we've still got a whatsapp group um and someone will put something on there or they'll put a picture and it's just it's it's quite an amazing feeling to be able to talk to those people again that that shared in something with you 
Yeah. Um, and I think probably in life we just don't do that enough. You know, whether Amen. it's Amen. brother Amen. or your brother or yeah. Yeah, whoever, we don't just sit and go, oh, let's think about that because we shared that and that was quite cool. Or that was so horrific. Let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I that I, I've taken a long time to get here, but I've distilled rugby for me in, into three things. One is to uh, build relationships two is to share those experiences like you're talking about and the third one is then to make those memories so as a coach as a as a young coach that wasn't what it was it was we've got to be better we've got to analyze we've got to do this we've got to be fitter we've got to and now the older I get and the, the different groups I've worked with and people have spoken to, that for me, it's not just rugby, it's sport, it's climbing Everest, it's being in a choir, being in a drama production, whatever it is, especially now as a, as a or not now, I've always been a teacher, but it's those three things. Can you build relationships, share experiences, whether that is on the top of a mountain or in the classroom or wherever, walk into the shops and then to share those memories. And I say that to the kids all the time. You're not gonna make a memory on this thing here, this this screen. You're gonna make a memory with somebody doing something. Go and do stuff and make memories and get in trouble and get it wrong. And then recap the story a hundred times, every time making it better than the time before. Talking of, of those things, and this is something I really want to talk to you about. And as I said to you backstage, I'd forgotten you'd played for the Barbarians until I had a little light bulb moment this morning. The Barbarians has become the the sort of branch back into a different rugby era. What what was it for you? What what was the excitement about the Barbarians for you? Again, I think it's having watched the boys play for years and seen them on TV and been like, that just looks fun. And I think playing for England and obviously the pressure of winning and and having sometimes quite a structured game plan and where you have to be. And on the third phase, you get you know, the second row, you're going to be over here. And I've not, I've not really ever enjoyed that. I've always liked rugby because stuff will change in front of you. And, you know, the phases aren't always exactly as you've planned them as a coach. Um, and it looked to me like the Barbarians on the pitch were just playing rugby because they wanted to have a go. There wasn't that. It didn't matter if they, I mean, obviously they want to win, but um, it didn't seem to matter, which meant that they appeared to have more freedom to just have a go and to throw that offload and to be an individual, but within a team. And I think probably the more I've been a coach and you see it, it's difficult to get very good individuals to work as a team. Um, but the barbarians seem to be able to encapsulate all of that. That really good individuals, but it was part of something. It was the barbarians, so they still they came back together and did the team bit. So when they announced that they were having a women's team, I was literally beside myself. <laughs> like, how do I get picked? What do I have to do? I'll do anything. What do I have to do? Um, and I watched it, and I watched them go to the US, and I was like, oh, I like what? Do, who do I tell that if like I'm available, I'll like whatever's needed, even if it's just carry water. Like I'm I'm cool with that. Um, and then the uh, stockers messaged me I think it was just before I went to Everest and said um we've got this game it's against England um, yeah. we'd like to invite you to play and I was like, <laughs> like oh my god um I didn't know what shape I was going to be in when I got back from Everest so 
I was pretty panicked about that. Um, and it was only, I think it was less than two weeks after we came down. So I wasn't at my best. I was pretty exhausted. <laughs> um, but the, I mean, the, the ethos, I'm, I'm only imagining, I've never been in the men's camp. But for me, the, the most amazing part was being able to play with the girls that I played against for so long. Yeah. So that, especially the Kiwis, that absolute obsession I had where <laughs> I, you know, and I hated them. I didn't know them. I didn't know them at all. Yeah, that, that, that was what I was going to say. Uh, you, you don't have to name names, but who, who, who did, or were there people who you changed your opinion of them because all of a sudden they were on your team and in your changing room rather than in the opposition? Were there people all who you them. thought, all of them? All of them, because... I, I hope it, it doesn't keep going in this way, but you just don't get to know people unless you play with them at club, like people from other countries. There's just not, there isn't socialising post Six Nations game. And I guess maybe only if you're on a big tour, might you do something on that last night. But again, it's not often with the opposition team. Um, and because they'd always been my nemesis for England as, as a squad, as a team, I just, I'd had to hate them. I'd had to think that they were all horrible people. <laughs> um, and then to play alongside them and to, you know, I think that first time we all walked into the room together, everyone was a bit like, oh, it's you. Oh, it's you. <laughs> um, as the days went on and yeah, we had a few drinks together and we talked about what we were going to do in the game and we had training sessions. And I got to know them as human beings and as people, and they're really nice people, obviously. Of course they are. Um, but I'd spent so long, yeah. It's, it's just a really weird feeling. And I was actually quite sad that I felt like I'd wasted so many years not knowing these amazing people that I was playing against. Um, and, yeah, I was just, yeah, really, really overwhelmed and privileged, I think, to have had the opportunity to play alongside them, not against them. Um, not just the Kiwis, obviously some of the other girls as well, um, who I'd fought against for a lot of years. <laughs> uh, it was just really a really humbling experience for me personally. Is the Barbarians, and there's lots of people talk about, Joe Marler has spoken about how the Barbarians kind of gave him his love back for the game again. Is it more that they value uh, the person than the result? Do you think that, so, so you're saying it doesn't matter if they want to win, but if they lose, there's no, there's not sort of a next week, there was no points or, you know, sponsor really dependent on the results. So does that then allow you to be yourself? Is that the important bit about it? I think so. And I, th I think you're supposed to be yourself because the point of the Barbarians is that it's a load of, individuals who come together as a team to represent that black and white um and you don't obviously you don't get that when you've got a national team and like you said you've got performance and results and everything each week and competitions but the barbarians has amazing individual players so you're supposed to be yourself you're supposed to do your thing because that's why you're in the squad is because you've been picked because you do your thing really well um so do your thing and then other people will fit in around your thing doing their thing and then together <laughs> it's a barbarian thing <laughs> it just it is it's one of those joy and i i love invitational rugby i think it, i've worked with samurai and penguins and it's just so good to have that shackles off you're here because go for it 
and it's such a liberating thing. And as a coach, it's it's quite an interesting thing because your your role is probably less about the performance and more about bringing in the right people and and giving them that license to go. It's, it's a different mindset. You, I get the impression I would love to be a player coached by you because you've got all those experiences. I would imagine that your rugby sessions are performance driven, but you'll understand people and relationships and teams and where an individual fits. You're you're now playing and coaching at Saracens, which I think is player coach to me is always a challenge. But you're also coaching Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> like, like this this is where I think women's sport and women's rugby has so many stories to tell. How the hell can you be coaching Sweden's women? What's that story? Well, right now it's not very easy because no <laughs> one can actually do anything. Um, and I think they're under about two foot of snow as well at the moment <laughs> in, their, um, in their season. So I went to university at Newcastle and um, we played against Northumbria, our local rivals. And Claire Cruikshank was at Northumbria Uni. Claire um, Cruikshank from the borders. I yeah, went to school with Claire. Well, there you go. Small world. Um, we got we were friends. We played against each other um, and stayed friends ever since uni. And she, she's at Edinburgh Uni now working, yeah. um, leading the women's rugby programme. And she had applied for the Sweden job, um, got it. And it's one of those jobs that quite a few um, foreign coaches have done. So there's been previous England English coaches. Um, and it's camp-based um, around the Europeans. So she just sent me a random message, I think, and was like, oh, do you fancy helping me out and doing this thing? A bit like the Everest thing. I was like, oh, cool. What, what is it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so she asked me to come on board and help with the forwards. So um, I came in sort of probably about just over a year and a bit ago. Um, and we've had a couple of camps, a couple of games. And it's just, yeah, it's been so good to be able to help support these fantastic athletes who are just super keen, want to get better, um, just lapping every bit of information up that they can get off you um, and trying to give them the best opportunity to perform in Europe. And, you know, Sweden were, I played with um, Ulrika Andersen yeah. at Henley and she played in the World Cup 2010. That was the last time Sweden were in. So it's not like they don't have a history of having you know, good rugby players and the ability to be in World Cup. So I, it's really special that I feel like hopefully I can help impact that positively and, and help support them to get back on that international scene, you know, go through the tiers at Europe um, and help some of those individual players as well. I've got absolutely no doubt. I think it would be amazing. And there is rugby everywhere. There's rugby. I, I played rugby with guys in a club in Scotland and Norway had got in touch with them because of their surname and they became Norwegian internationals. Like there is there is rugby there is rugby everywhere. And I can just imagine, you know, that unfortunately that snobbish uh, rugby thing of tears, but players in those tears must be lapping up, getting input from yourself and from Claire and they they must just have that drive and determination and and a bit like you in the early days of having to do so many things to be a player they they'll be having to make choices about their rugby but they'll do it because they love it and they're enthusiastic about it and as a coach 
it's just such a joy to be in that situation. Yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. Well, Tamara, I, I did say to you about a time when we've gone way over and I can only apologise and I think we're going to have to come back for part two. But the thing I'm asking all guests to do is to finish off the sentence. Now, I'm not sure where this is going to go. You are you are someone who says yes, uh, which I am and, and frustrates uh, mostly my wife, I think, because I seldom say no to things. Um I'm passionate about my sport and working with people and I've spoken to you about how I find rugby and sport and so I'm intrigued as to where this is going to go. So Tamara Taylor, finish the sentence for me please. Happiness is? Taking opportunities and I had this really succinct in my head and now it's gone. Taking <laughs> opportunities um, and doing what you love. I absolutely love it and you have absolutely done that. Tamara Taylor, I can only say a massive thank you for your time. I have loved speaking to you and between the Channel 4 documentary, the autobiography and part two of the Happiness is a Pod, we're going to meet again. Tamara Taylor, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you as a guest. Thanks for having me, Bruce. It's been fun. Thank you. Well, uh, I have a big silly grin on my face because that has just been an absolute joy. Um, someone who is passionate and enthusiastic, who has said yes, has made choices for how she wants it to be and has shown unbelievable determination to make it happen. We've just spoken to a World Cup winner who has been to Everest at number 10 Downing Street what what more can you ask for uh i've absolutely loved it i can't wait for the next bit i can't believe i've now roped myself into a channel 4 documentary and uh, an autobiography but hey we take opportunities and we do what we love i'm pretty sure that was the message my name is bruce Aitchison from happiness is egg shaped and this has been the happiness is podcast thank you very much for listening and i look forward to speaking to you again soon in the future you can catch this on youtube and on social media and on all the normal places that you can find your podcasts on apple on spotify and on acast i'll see you there thanks for listening Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. No, we can't talk about this last night. And he said happiness is egg-shaped. Hey, um, happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. My name is Sean Phelan and I am the producer of the Happiness Is podcast. But if you want a podcast that focuses on the grassroots side of rugby, check out my show, The Philly Boots Rugby Roundtable, where we discuss the biggest issues in grassroots rugby in the UK, with a different panel of players, coaches and volunteers each week. Listen now at all your favourite podcast providers, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or visit fybrugby.com. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.